quick warning for listeners, this podcast may get graphic. It is, of course, about the Bible. Welcome to the Brothers Berkeley, a Bible study podcast aimed at responsible reading and application of the Bible. I'm your host, Spencer Berkeley. And I'm your other host, Tyler Berkeley. All right, let's get started. Chapter 6, Unheeded Warnings. Jeremiah's critique and warning focuses directly on the city of Jerusalem in chapter 6. The children of Benjamin and the other fortified cities are notified of the impending doom of the north and told to flee from Jerusalem for safety. It would be safer to be hiding in the hills than to be in the fortified cities when Babylon arrives. Jeremiah describes the invading army as shepherds with their flocks, laying siege to the holy city as they attack her walls at all hours of the day. The words of the prophet in verse 6 paint a chilling and troubling picture. First, Jeremiah proclaims, Thus says Yahweh of hosts. But Yahweh does not address Jerusalem and her soldiers. He addresses the Babylonian army. Yahweh is commanding the foreign military. Second, Yahweh commands the cutting down of trees. In Deuteronomy 20, the Hebrew people are commanded not to cut down trees that bear fruit when they wage war against a city. The environmental effects of war were to be mitigated by these measures among others. Their battles would possibly ruin a harvest, but the land itself was to remain fruitful. Yahweh's command to the invading forces implies the environment around Jerusalem would not recover for years to come. The nightmare sketch is completed when Yahweh commands the trees to be used to build a siege ramp against Jerusalem's walls. Jeremiah's portrayal of Jerusalem's destruction in verse 6 alone demonstrates what is at stake. So, where do we go from there? So, there are three different things here. When you say Yahweh is with you, you can mean Yahweh is with us, for us, on our side. You can also mean, hey, Yahweh is with us. He's a fly on the wall, just a neutral party who is observing and is going to step in at some time. This is the third option, and it's a bad one. Yahweh is with us, and he's not for us. Hmm. Yahweh is specifically coming against us. Yeah, that's a rough one. Yeah. I don't know what all to say as far as just like an offhand comment that I normally give, because especially like Clements is pretty much just like, hey, this is going to be really bad, outlined over and over again. I may be missing some subtleties. I am ready to admit that. Clements, props to the guy, because I think he does a decent job. But what do you say to that? What do you do with that reading? I mean, what does it mean to understand that God is with us and then actively against our our ends? Well, it's the opposite of what we read last week, where, uh, or last episode, where... The attitude was reflected, oh, God's not going to do anything. Yahweh of hosts is commanding the Babylonian army here. The theology, as we're going to find out later, and as we've already kind of seen in Jeremiah, a lot of the theology is, oh, Yahweh's going to protect Jerusalem because Jerusalem is Yahweh's city and it contains Yahweh's temple. Why wouldn't Yahweh protect it? 
in this verse alone, Yahweh's not protecting Yahweh's temple. Yahweh's not protecting Yahweh's city. That serves so many different purposes. That states such a, a layered view of reality where the ancient Near Eastern comment would be, how can Yahweh come against his own city? That would be nonsense. And on the other hand, why would Yahweh also favor a people who doesn't serve him and be commanding these armies that don't concern him at all? And then in the meta-narrative, you get this sense of, oh, Yahweh isn't even tied down to any of this, that there is this bigger reality of Yahweh isn't tied to Israel in the way that Baal is tied to other nations. Yeah, I mean, it reads, it kind of reads like Troy, like the opposite of the movie Troy, (laughs) or the, I guess there's a mythology without Brad Pitt, but uh, (laughs) I like the one. But who wants that? Yeah, I know. No, it, it seems like there's this reality that isn't captured in the other myths, right? Mm. Where there's there's kind of this human logic applied to, you know, the myth of Troy and Helen of Troy, where, what is it, uh, Achilles goes in as Brad Pitt and chops off and, like, desecrates a temple and, you know, kills the priests. And, oh, that's a bad sign because that's going to bring evil forces upon uh, Achilles. And who are the, who was Achilles with? Agamemnon's army. That being said, not seeing that, seeing kind of the opposite logic applied, where God's like, no, I don't, I don't need that. If you're not, if you're not going to be in this relationship anymore, like, I'm God, I'm Yahweh. And I also had a question about like Yahweh of hosts, what that phrase means or if there's any illuminating understanding that comes with that, especially considering this this theology that set, that kind of reaches outside of human logic of mm. Yahweh will not destroy Yahweh's own temple, right? Because the temple is sacred and that's what is so important. No, Yahweh is Yahweh. Does Yahweh of hosts have anything to do with that? I think it's actually really an ironic statement that Jeremiah is setting up, an ironic image that Jeremiah is setting up. He doesn't use Yahweh of hosts all the time, Hmm. but here, when there is an army being depicted, he uses that, that phrase and that name, Yahweh of hosts. Of course, Yahweh of hosts simply means those hosts are armies that Yahweh is I don't want to say puppet master. That's too controlling. I think we often think of that Hellenistic God who is sovereign and just micromanaging human history. That's not what is being portrayed here. What is being portrayed is a nation, a country that bears Yahweh's name has miscarried uh, it. So, I mean, I was going to say terribly, but I mean, they've they've taken it in vain at that point, right? Mm. Like that's a, I mean, that's a that's a an image that's worth bringing up that they have carried it in vain to the point that Yahweh is actually against them and bringing an army against them. And Yahweh has been brought to the point where it doesn't even matter if the land is able to be harvested next year. That it doesn't matter if the land can be harvested in the near future. Yahweh has to make something happen for this to cease. I think in Isaiah and Ezekiel, I think it's either one of those. And Jeremiah may say it in 
one of his forms that there is a a contradiction, a paradox of Yahweh coming against his people. That on the one hand, his people acting in a way and carrying his name in vain says something about Yahweh that is untrue. But in the ancient Near East, if a nation is conquered, that means that the other god conquered it. That's not true either. Yeah, I was having so many thoughts during that talk. Because there's so many ways to think about this in application. There's so many ways to think about it theologically that are just interesting. I mean, just genuinely, just kind of fun to talk about. But it is this consistency of Yahweh. It is mythological in the way that it's being presented. It is poetic in, in mythology. That is the fun part of the Old Testament that I like personally. You have these first Yahweh defying general God logic, (laughs) right? That first off is just, is mythological. That's the stuff myths and overarching narratives are made of, right? Mm. That's what you're using to shape your life, whether you like it or not kind of thing. This story then should be a, a mythology that we should say, like, if this is a part of our theology, it changes things for us mm. because it explicitly says Yahweh, God of Yahweh of hosts, is not going to be acting in what we consider logical ways. Not necessarily, or rather, God is not going to be acting in ways that apply our logic. God is going to be acting, Yahweh is going to be acting in ways that are consistent with what Yahweh is about. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself, I think, is is something to keep in mind of who we are to be and who we are to be as Christians or believers. God is going to be consistent about that. Mm. We can pretend to have our own kind of ways about it, but God's going to be God. And we got to be careful when we start trying to manipulate that for our ends, as opposed to being a part of what God is trying to do. Certainly. I'm always cautious about this, not putting a box on God conversation. Because on the one hand, absolutely. God isn't going to be put in a box just because you're Israel doesn't mean that God is going to favor you all the time, especially when you're carrying his name in vain yeah. and creating a paradox in the character of God. But the character of God is consistent. Yeah. And that idea that, oh, you can't put a box in God, I don't want to say it doesn't apply to the character of God. I just mean to say there is a definable character of God. There is something that we can hold on to here. Jeremiah isn't breaking that apart to the point of breaking God's character. You're, You're right. There's a consistency of God's character here that allows for God to be both faithful to the covenant and also the God who is commanding the Babylonian army yeah. to come against his holy city and holy temple. Right. I think it, it is one of those things where God being the God of hosts in this means and, and bringing that army against God's own temple, it is consistent with the absoluteness of God's power, God's wrath, God's sovereignty. It shows the consistency of God's own understanding of God's self. Mm. That's a weird, a weird statement, but kind of it shows that God's not pining for your affection in that needy, willing to do whatever for you type of way. 
your worship and your songs and your money and your temples and your stuff. It's the temple. It's not just like that Baptist church on 36th and MacArthur. I don't know if there is one. It's the temple, God's temple, Yahweh's temple. And Yahweh's like, yeah, it's we're done here. Right. No, the, the closest we get to it in our modern day is Mecca. Or the Vatican. Right. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, those two, those two locations. Right. Like, Even I would say present day Jerusalem, it's held up in this holy of holies type of way. It is. Especially amongst just, American, American Christians, it is. Right. It's, it's just anybody who's been there knows it's been split into three different sections. So there's. It's not pristine and. and right. It's complicated. It's not not held sacred to millions of people in a way that requires sanctity Hmm. at the very entrance of the place. The idea that the Christian is allowed into Mecca is going to be an honor that is bestowed upon you. The idea that you can enter the Vatican is an honor that is bestowed upon you. Anybody can enter Jerusalem as long as the Israeli guards let you pass. Right. So that's the parallel that I'm drawing, I guess. Yeah. Just that what is sacrificed for the overcoming of Jerusalem is Jerusalem's near future. Yeah. That, That when you're cutting down trees, trees take a generation. The idea that this generation is going to be fruitful is implicitly contradicted here. This generation is fruitless. I mean, this generation is done. Even and it's going to be and it's going to be used for its own defeat. Yeah, it's tohu vabohu. It's that entropy, mm. it just wrapping in on itself over and over and over again. Destruction on destruction, continuing, and the result is fruitlessness. Right, a barren wasteland. We'll, we'll get that. Get to that. Verse 8 reads, be disciplined. That could read, take this instruction or be admonished. Be disciplined, Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate and uninhabited land. Jerusalem's stubbornness, their refusal to be corrected, is the primary theme running through chapter 6. Yahweh has sent prophets who serve as guides on the road and sentinels on the wall, but Jerusalem would not listen. The natural consequence of walking down the wrong road is that you find yourself lost. If you ignore the watchman's alarm, you will find yourself surrounded by terror. Jeremiah is filled with rage on behalf of Yahweh. He says the people of Jerusalem have have uncircumcised ears. They cannot give heed. But Jeremiah is not asking them to do something they are incapable of. It is as if Jerusalem has a prohibition on listening to hard truths. What do you think? I'm struck by the fact that on the one hand, I know we keep on using him as an, an example. Him on who? Hand, I don't know who you're talking about. Whenever you say, just say him. <laughs> I have no clue. It's not that obvious. On the one hand, we have Donald Trump who just... Oh, him. Who fires advisors who tell him something he doesn't want to know or something he doesn't want to hear. But on the other hand, and this might be more applicable to the common American, we have uh, infotainment networks where we turn off the channels, the 
programs that we don't agree with. And we don't follow the advice and we don't take in the information from people that we don't agree with. We don't entertain the information that we don't agree with. And then we wonder why we find ourselves lost. We wonder why we find ourselves with protests all over. We wonder why we find ourselves with over 110,000 people dead with coronavirus. We don't listen. We don't listen to information that we don't want to hear. Yeah, I think that's a Republican problem. Yeah, I think they don't listen. <laughs> Just completely or like not gonna not gonna hear it, Tyler. No, I'm not a Republican, but I think there are Republicans that do listen. Yada yada, whatever. No, I mean I think that's true. We've created space for ourselves to turn off any admonishment, any discipline that we might need to take. We are capable of living in a reverberating echo chamber that mm. just tells us what we already think. I mean, we already do that. Well, I do that to some extent. I listen to podcasts that inf inform me on certain political views. Well... That's rough. That's a rough one. Because can I say those political views are always quote unquote correct? Probably not. If mm. I'm honest with myself, probably not. They have their own problems. How much do we do that with, how much do we do that just across the board? I like the first couple words that uh, you quoted in that little stanza. Verse eight reads, be disciplined. Oof, God, what does that look like for us to allow ourselves to be disciplined? I think we had talked about this weeks ago. What does it mean for us to be disciplined? What does it mean for us to take discipline as a society? What does it mean as individuals? Do we see that in ways that we would understand? Do we see the consequences of our actions as discipline, as the results of something that we've made happen? Mm. We've talked about the end game, understanding yourself in the end game as a part of what actually happens in the world. Are we so blind and deaf? I mean, I, I see this every every year we talk about school budgets, public school education budgets. We live in Oklahoma. The, the budgets are still not up to 2008 standards. That was 12 years ago. And we're still not up to those, those same like financial budget standards for education. And that, and that was mainly to give tax breaks and incentivize our economy. That's basically the, the reason it was given. Well, then you have people, they're in the corner of charter schools and private schools, and they say, well, public schools have failed our children. You defunded them. Doesn't make sense. You can't have it both ways. We can't fail if you trip us. That's not our failure. That's, that's not the failure of public schools. It's the failure of the system to not fund something that you're supposed to provide to everybody. That's my rant about public school funding, right? <laughs> On the other hand, you hear it all the time with what, whatever it might be where poor people are to blame, right? Where uh, this fill-in-the-identifier is to blame. And then if you look at that person and you look at what they're going through, it's like, well, yeah, they don't have a job. They don't have any meaningful way to be employed. They don't have any meaningful way to look at the future. They're struggling with existential anxiety because of the climate. All, all manner of things. And they're the problem. That doesn't make sense. I think we don't understand ourselves as reaping what you sow. It's like coronavirus. 
it takes a certain amount of time to incubate and you're not going to see the full full consequences of opening your state for a couple weeks so you get people that'll be like well yeah we went to this uh restaurant and we were fine everybody was fine it was good and then like two weeks later then there's a problem that's part of the problem you don't know till two weeks later some of this is we're not really willing to recognize what we've done until it's too late that's a pretty cheap take on that no, I, I was reminded with that alternate interpretation of take this instruction or be admonished. Just dad used to use the phrase with me, teachable spirit, mm. was just the idea that you were willing to come at an alternate viewpoint, an alternate reality, something that you were opposed to, and ask questions to be informed rather than automatically opposed. Yeah. Rather than being obstinate. Right. Yeah. I mean, we should probably then say that's directly how Judah's acting. Obstinate, right? Right. Not obstinate in the sense that they did one thing. No, they saw the Northern Kingdom get destroyed. So it's not obstinance, not in a vacuum. It's not, you're a little kid and you're going about your life and you're kind of a turd. You don't learn. You're kind of a stubborn little, mm-hmm. No, it's you just saw this terrible destruction happen to somebody else and you sat there and now you still can't learn. You still can't look at what happened and go, we got to change. No, it's it's the sense that the people who rise up to adjust the system, to correct the system, end up making the exact same errors. They end up causing the exact same problems among us. They don't listen to history. They don't listen to the prophets who are interpreting history. Mm. There's no sense in which they are being disciplined or admonished or instructed by anyone outside themselves. Mm. And for that, we have a little parable to tell you. Uncircumcised ears, a parable. There once was a king in a faraway land who did as he pleased, scepter in hand. The peasants despised him, but lords did not, for they could buy whatever they sought. The jesters and wise men of the king's court praised him and gave him all their support. The peasants grew wise as they worked in the sun. They said, we outnumber them a hundred to one. A hermit caught wind of this unrest and went to the king, wanting what's best. O king of the land, he said as he knelt, among the peasants, injustice is felt. They hunger and starve as you eat cake. Please seek justice for your own sake. He was sent away, his warning unheard. He went to the lords to share his word, but they would not hear, they would not heed. Words so unkind, drinking their mead. So the hermit sat with ash on his head and watched from the hill eating hard bread. In the late fall, sure as can be, the kingdom fell to peasantry. The people rejoiced, wine and singing, then they appointed lords and their king. The hermit sighed, how many years until this court has shut their ears?
Jeremiah's description of Jerusalem's character is scathing. Everyone in the city, no matter their position, seeks profit through violence and injustice. From the prophet proclaiming at the gates of the city to the priest at the altar of the temple, everyone works in deception. Those in Jerusalem slap a band-aid on the mortal wound of the Assyrian exile and say, See? Everything is fine. They don't even know how to be embarrassed of their injustice or idolatry. It would be fair to suspect that Jeremiah is being prophetically bombastic in his description of everyone in Jerusalem. However, if there are exceptions, they only prove the rule. Coming judgment is not directed at individuals, but the city and the kingdom itself. So, with that, with that phrase, the prophet proclaiming at the gate to the priest at the altar of the temple, it's really important to understand those are the two extremes of what someone experiences in the city. Those are the city itself. Those encompass the city. Everyone within the city goes through those two things. All of them end up working in deception. I was just saying that everyone within the in the city, from the prophet to the priest, and anybody who listens to them, and anyone who listens to them or relies on them for interpreting the scripture, they're all dealing in this deception. They're all dealing in falsity. Jeremiah extends this to everybody. On a certain level, when we're talking about that tension between the historical Jeremiah Textual Jeremiah, who is represented, ends up getting his words written down in the midst of exile. What we have to question is well, if everyone is in Jerusalem is guilty of this, then why do we know about Jeremiah's words? Yeah. Why do we know what Jeremiah said if everyone is dealing in this deception? I think the answer is everyone is a victim of the system, hmm. that there are figureheads like the prophets and the priest. Everyone likes it that way. Everyone's fine with slapping a Band-Aid on something like racism or slavery. Everyone's fine with slapping a Band-Aid on the genocide of the indigenous people or what, what have you. All of the problems of our culture. Yeah. But the idea is that everyone is a victim of the system. And that includes George Floyd and George Floyd's killer. They're all a victim of the system. Yeah, the, uh, a victim of the falsity that is the system. If there's anything to keep in mind with also kind of wanting to have empathy for the people that maybe are doing, quote unquote, the right thing or acting in the right ways, is just to say that there are... There are understandings, perhaps, that are incorrect, unnecessary, or there's idolatry there. I think that that's something we harp on. We harp on with like combining your understanding of identity of Christianity with being American, right? That's not an understanding at which I look at those people and go, oh, you're an evil person. You believe that. No, that's idolatry. That's a false understanding as false theology. But who told you that? Where'd you get that from? Where'd you learn that? Because the reality is you got that from somewhere and it's impacting people on people on people. I, I think that's that's why we give our critiques, I guess. That's why we continually kind of harp on certain things that we do. It's not necessarily because we don't also have problems or mm-hmm. misunderstandings or points of view that need to be changed, right? But I think it is this continual 
let's critique. It doesn't mean we think you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that we think of ourselves as outside of that either. Even us here in this podcast, like, we don't, we might say some stuff, but we are also victims of a certain amount of a system that gives us information in imperfect and sometimes harmful ways. We also have paradigms that need shifting. Trying to be self-aware enough to reconcile that is something it's not easy. Yeah. On the other side of the idea that Jeremiah is being prophetically bombastic is the idea that Jeremiah counts himself among the victims of the system. Even historically speaking, Jeremiah is going to be a victim of the exile. Right. I think it shouldn't be an excuse, right? Mm. Jeremiah is not giving an excuse to all the people that maybe are just mistaken, though, either. So, just as a, as a side conversation, okay, there's a discussion about defunding the police currently okay. that we're having. This is a coming up from the, the protests and riots and stuff, and yeah. the discussion is basically about how to how to get rid of police. And some people are all the way to abolish the police, completely get rid of them. There are other understandings that are take away certain responsibilities and taking away those responsibilities, reallocate funding for other programs and other infrastructure to be started. I will admit that blew my mind whenever I realized, oh, there's so much stuff that our overarching mentality and understanding of society says, that's something the police handles. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. And that's something similar that we need to be willing to reshape and reform and and let ourselves be critiqued. And quite frankly, as straight white men living in America, there is a certain amount of Are we willing to understand ourselves as part of the problem? Are we willing to take that, to be admonished? And not even necessarily that we ourselves like sit around and do things that are on purpose, but that our system tells us certain things about who we are. And maybe they're not always right. I guess the question of, are you willing to look at the way that you have been brainwashed? That, I, I mean, that's that's kind of the point of postmodernism is everyone's been brainwashed in some way. How do we recognize that? How do we act in a way that questions that and takes account of that? And I think that's the legitimate argument of postmodernism. At the same time, I think there is a sense of truth in Jeremiah's understanding of Jerusalem's character and Yahweh's character that goes beyond what the people are being brainwashed into, what the people are accepting without questioning. I guess the question is, Is it simply that we are okay with questioning who we are and what has made us who we are and the systems that we have available to us? Do we restructure those systems? Do we have faith that those restructured systems won't also provide manipulating mindscapes for people to (laughs) enjoy? Like, What is the solution in that and how do we be a part of that solution It goes back to what I was saying. There's a discussion about defunding the police. 
I think that's a legitimate discussion, even if you're a police officer. Like, I think there's a legitimate discussion to be had about what are your responsibilities and how can they be more specialized and how can that how can there be a broader infrastructure of how to take care of our society? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a discussion to have. Part of that discussion, though, is, well, when we look at the text, if there's a certain sense in which you're kind of building up narratives around you that tell you certain things, and some of those things may be false. A lot of those things may be false. How do we create systems that aren't going to perpetuate falsities? Can we? Or is it just is it just hopeless? Or is it something where only a theocracy can do that? Is it something where even Israel and Judah failed? How do we live our lives? Are you trying to lead into the last one? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Last section. So here's the deal. They will not heed the warnings of the prophets. So Yahweh must call on foreign nations and creation itself to witness. They reject Yahweh's words and covenant and expect that they can buy his favor with expensive foreign spices. Jeremiah is likened to a refiner of silver, but the silver will not give up the lead it clings to. They will be called rejected silver because Yahweh has rejected them, his chosen people. In answer to your question, yes, it is too late for them. They have gone too far down that road to adjust, to get beyond the injustice that they have inflicted on others. The consequences of their embrace of that injustice, that tohu vabohu, those powers, has grown too strong to be rejected, to be held back. So the question is more... How much can we take this into account for our own society right now? Is it just that we we understand that we have to keep kind of mitigating those things, keep adjusting them and transforming them towards something step by step a little bit at a time? Does it take full revolution scale, like upheaval and, and rebuilding? And, and even in that rebuilding Will it be better even? I guess the question I would ask you is, are you also assuming that America is a Christian nation or that there is a possibility of a Christian nation in that this is addressed to God's people? This is going to be addressed to the church rather than at least what we would call today a country. Yeah. I think that's important to point out. At least for the church, the question is, are we, are we heeding the warnings of the prophets? Is Yahweh having to call on others outside of ourselves and creation itself to witness to his truths? I think that goes back to what you were asking at the beginning about the Bible, even, is what happens when we don't hear the song, the melody from the people that we're supposed to be hearing the melody from. Well, Yahweh ends up having to call on others to play that melody. Yahweh has to end up calling on creation itself to play that melody. Yeah, I was about to say, I was actually about to make that argument before you... Undercut it. Yeah, you just undercut my argument. I think there are people hearing those notes of... It can be as simple as recalibration or it can be as explosive as revolution, but it does seem like 
there are people that are understanding that things are wrong. Mm-hmm. There are people that are understanding that there are people that are going hungry. There are people that are homeless. There are people that that we can do better for. And I wish, I, I genuinely wish that I could say that the church as a whole kind of consolidated and were standing in solidarity about their response to that. And the American church, at least, could respond in unison. But instead, it does seem like, I mean, depending on your church, what is being said? Kind of the same thing we were saying about being disciplined. Don't know that you can go to your church and that you will find admonishment. I don't know that you're going to get that, depending on the church you go to. I don't know. And quite frankly, even if you do, you can leave that church and go to another church that's going to just tell you what you want to hear and repeat what you want, what you already believe. I don't know that there is a unified understanding of our theology that, that we can say for sure, like, this is what we mean. This is where we stand. It does not appear that way. And if it does appear that way, unfortunately, it mostly appears that way in, in some negative senses. Meaning, I see more churches that get started at the wealthy part of town hmm. than I do see churches that are started in poor parts of towns. That doesn't mean that there aren't other people, churches, church groups working in poor parts of towns. It just means... If the message is unified, it becomes clear what that message is. Mm. And maybe that's a, an oversimplification of a more like 60-40 split. Maybe that's what it is. But it's also, there's a certain amount of our own church systems telling us who matters, telling us where we should be, telling us who we should pay attention to and what we should do. And I don't know that those are always focusing on... Yahweh approved, Yahweh stamped uh, <laughs> things. And by that, I just mean, I do think there is a clear message of taking care of people in need. Yeah. Something that strikes me is what what is the lead that this silver is clinging to? What is the lead that the church is clinging to? And honestly, I hesitate to say this. The <laughs> It's funny one because the... then you actually hesitated. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. One of the things that I've started looking for in churches is whether or not they have a building because it turns the church into a a business, Yeah, a business that has bills to pay and quotas to meet, people to attract, money to earn. Yeah. Man. And maybe that's one of those lies that we're being told. Maybe that's one of the falsities that we're being told in the American church is that you have to have a brick and mortar situation and and that's what it means to be – the church. Yeah. I will also I'll put a, a community, yeah. Yeah, and I and I also do want to throw just like a, a dissenting voice to that comment. Having an actual physical place for people to go in communities can provide a lot of help to communities. So let's give voice to both sides because yeah, if your church is open and functioning and healthy and circulating, there's a certain amount in which it should be benefiting all the people around you, whether or not they give you money. You should be helping people. <laughs> like, it's as simple as that. If you, if you don't see people that are not parishioners in the formal way, like, if you don't see those people in your church, that's a problem. Yeah, it's just... I have been in two cities. 
I've been in several churches within those cities, and I have been in two churches in both cities, respectively, that didn't have a building, that didn't own a building. And the churches that didn't have a building were doing more for the communities around them than any of the churches with a building. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the churches with the buildings were the ones who were complaining about the minority kids playing basketball on their outdoor basketball courts. Right. Hopefully that's not the situation for most people, right? I don't know. Again, I hope the situation is that you have people that are open to helping the community instead of their own comfort. Yeah. That being said, I don't necessarily want to make this about uh, critiquing... Because I could say like, oh, my church does X, Y, and Z, and and they provide, they house certain meetings, and they house certain functions, and they do all this stuff. I could say that. The argument should still be... uh, They have great, expensive foreign spices to offer for Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, that should be the conversation, is rather... What are the foreign spices that we're providing? And I think there are some pretty easy ones to pick out about a light show and a rock band and all that. That's, that's well, I I completely disagree. I think I think that the foreign spices are actually legitimate. Hmm. I think they're legitimate uh, sacrifices. Oh, we have a four million person church, so we can build four people, four homeless people buildings. Oh man, isn't that great? Hmm. But you know what you did? You also built a five million dollar building at the same time. Yeah. That wasn't a sacrifice. That was you profiting off of this quote unquote mission. The foreign spices are legitimate. They're legitimate. And Jesus ends up saying to the Pharisees, you count to the 10th of whatever, of the cumin and all of those different spices. I'm wondering why you did that when you ignored the biggest factions of the law. Jesus doesn't say stop doing that. Jesus says stop ignoring the biggest problems, the biggest issues of the law. I think that's what God is saying here, too. I think that's what Yahweh is saying here, too. It's not that oh, Sheba spices, I would never accept them. I would never accept your your sacrifices. It's just, hey, man, you're, you're making all these sacrifices. You're putting in all this work when it would take a fraction of the work to address the key components of what the law is. Hmm. I really think that's what it comes down to is as much as you've helped out four people by building, by that example, by building their homes or something, you could have helped out a lot more people doing something more communal. Yeah. You could have, you could have met people where they are. That issue extends to so many different lead particles that our church holds on to. The idea that a church should be bigger than a community that can be at a house party. I think that's really foreign to uh, the apostles. I was going to say, I think there's a Reinhold Niebuhr quote. He basically says that the powers that be are willing, they're, they're willing to make do for charity, but they're not necessarily willing to sacrifice power. I, I think that's what you're getting at here is saying those spices are, are a decadent sense of charity that they're willing to give up, but no real power is exchanged or given up or sacrificed 
I think that's a good understanding for what is being asked of us. Mm. What is actually being asked of us, even as people in society, I think the question is, what power are you willing to give up for somebody else? You are probably definitely willing to spend some money, go to a march, or change your uh, Facebook profile page to the Black Square The real question I have to ask myself is, at what point do I understand certain privileges and certain power that I hold in society? What are white people willing to give up to make sure that injustice upon communities of color is not going to happen? That's probably a bigger question than defunding the police. That is a question that I think goes deeper into what are we willing to really give up and sacrifice I think there's a certain amount that the police are part of an infrastructure that we could talk about, able to help other communities and hurt certain communities. We could talk about that and whatever. The question is, though, like, it's a popular thing that's happening right now, and I'm glad to see movement on that, but I'm also like, I don't want it to just be another trend. It'd be a travesty to just continue on that. The one critique I have about that is Jesus doesn't call us to pick up our cross and carry it for the sake of Black Lives Matter. And I can promise you, the Jews who followed different messiahs of Jesus's day felt just as, if not more, justified in their complaints against the Roman Empire. The question we need to end up asking is, what am I carrying the cross for? I want to acknowledge and even affirm the move that you're making there. I think Jesus affirms and moves it one step further to stop going to the hill to die on a cross for Jewish nationalism. Stop going to the cross and on that hill to die for Black Lives Matter even. I think Jesus puts in question all of these movements in a way that makes us uncomfortable. And it's the same way that Jeremiah makes us uncomfortable. I think it puts in question all of the ways that we differentiate ourselves. And I understand that there are counter movements like All Lives Matter that sound very, very similar to that. Jesus isn't that. And that's what the Bible ends up leading to. Yeah, I would throw this out there. What you just said is correct. I I think we have to do the job of understanding that even, you know, like a Black Lives Matter, even wanting to fully affirm that, I think we have to understand that will be telling you lies as well, Mm. right? Or maybe in a certain way, we could say, hey, there's lead that that's clean. Right. It doesn't even have to be lies outright. We don't have to say, hey, you're believing in a lie as much as, hey, there's something faulty. There are imperfections. Yeah, there are imperfections to that movement. That being said, I do want to make it clear, like, I went to that march. I fully support movement and change. Perhaps that's one argument I would make is say, there are going to be imperfections in those. At what point do we understand progress and letting go of certain imperfections? There's only one perfect cross-bearing effort or witness, Mm -hmm. the witness of Christ. I just don't know as far as... As far as being able to wrestle with that, I guess, and hold those intention to understand that, 
you are going to be a, a part of imperfect situations that you already are, to what degree are we called to hold that intention as we move through our lives? If we're making decisions about what we should do, where we should involve ourselves, I don't know. My opinion would be more towards one that is active and working, even while understanding that those things are imperfect. Sure. And of course, my answer to that is, man, there's so many movements going on during Jesus's day that are Jewish. They span the spectrum of justified and unjustified. Yeah. Jesus doesn't join any of them. Jesus subverts all of them. And then his apostles do the same. Yeah. And lead people to do the same. I'm not saying that Jesus's apostles don't sound a lot like such and such and so and so. Yeah. I, I think they claim truth where they find it in other people's message. I've heard truth in the Black Lives Matter movement and their leaders that Jesus can definitely claim, but there's some of it that Jesus has to subvert. The question I think Jesus puts to them is, are you going to crucify me or not? And are you going to recognize the truth or not? A lot of movements, even the just ones, end up saying, no, we're, we're committed to the lead that is in us. Hmm. And I get that. I understand that. There's a reason why Jesus calls us to the cross. Yeah. And there's a reason why Jesus ends up saying, forgive them for they do not know what they do. His disciples and followers end up repeating that. It's because they don't know what they're doing. It's because they're so caught up in their righteous movement of Black Lives Matter that maybe they don't see the limits of that. Hmm. Yeah. And and that's understandable. And Jesus gives that understanding from the cross. It's just, it's not the hill that I think Christians are called to die on. Yeah. While at the same time, Christians are completely capable of finding common ground on. It's still silver, even when it's yeah. clean to some lead. Yeah. It's understanding the silver, but not being so disillusioned to think that it's pure. Mm. I would say, I think celebrating that silver when you find it is probably a good thing. I understand. It's not it. I hate to kind of end this episode that way. At least a solution for our application could be look for the silver, right? The silver linings. Look for the silver, but also understand and and be prepared for an understanding that there's going to be some lead in that. There's going to be imperfections. This is not an end-all, be-all. Your movement that you're interested in that's just and justified, it's not the end-all, be-all. It's not mm-hmm. it. And even, I feel like you just summarized the tension that ends up coming between us a lot. I feel like you end up favoring the movements that still include some lead. And I end up going, hey, there's some lead in there. Yeah. And you say, well, that doesn't take away the silver. And I say, but it's not pure. Right. <laughs> like, no, I think, I think that's... End up arguing over that. Those are arguments we should be having. I think those are arguments we we should be looking through and going, no, that's imperfect. Yeah, there that, needs to be like somebody that's saying that. Where the church should be having conversations. Yeah, right. I will also say I, th- I think unfortunately you also have people going. There's lead in that. <laughs> you have people going like there's lead in that, and they're not Tyler Berkeley going. Jesus right. is calling us for beyond that. 
that's right. part of my issue is I agree with right. you. I like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love my brother. There are also literally churches who are mm-hmm. supposed to be preaching that silver who only have lead to give. They are preaching lead with like a little they're, bit of silver. Yeah, they're 1% silver and they're calling it a silver alloy and they're just right out there offering it and they're making arguments that sound a lot the same. Yes. And I think that's where where we should be specific is Tyler Berkeley is advocating for something better and bigger and more perfect than Black Lives Matter. Not, Mm. he's not arguing. All Lives Matter. Yeah. He's not arguing some All Lives Matter bullshit. Thanks for listening to the Brothers Berkeley, a Bible study podcast. Remember, you can contact us at thebrothersberkeley at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S-B-E-R-K-L-E-Y at gmail.com. Until next time, be responsible in your reading and application. <laughs>